Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia, where it's currently really sunny and nice. We hope that you're doing well and enjoying the beginning of spring. In this episode, we've got a very special guest coming on, Jonathan Lionheart, and we hope that you enjoy uh, the episode with him. And uh, also want to say thanks to Jason Stark, who's been a real star in producing a, a number of episodes for OnScript Podcast, he produced this episode. So thank you so much, Jason. Also to Taylor Terzek, who, who produces for us as well. Uh, some of you may have known that a little while ago, uh, Ed Hackey retired from OnScript and after a number of years of helping us. So thanks so much, Jason and Taylor. Um, if you'd like to support OnScript on a regular basis, you can do so by going to onscript.study forward slash donate or by flying a, uh, a blimp with a uh, a sign across a uh, stadium of your choice in your local area, something uh, to consider as we get into the warmer weather this summer. Um, it's a great opportunity to spread the word. So thanks so much for all you're doing on that front and for listening. Enjoy. Great. Well, welcome back to OnScript. I'm really delighted uh, today to introduce Jonathan Leinhart. I, I haven't had as much fun reading a book in years, I'd say. Uh, reading monotheism um, was just such a joy. And it was a mutual friend, friend, Michael Thompson, who was harping on about how excellent this book is. And Michael's um, editor, a significant editor in the world of biblical studies, but he's, he's now at Whippenstock. Um, was he the guy who held this for you? Uh, yeah, him and, and Robin uh, Perry. Oh, Robin, of course. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Um, so they were saying, Chris, you've just, you've got to get this guy on OnScript. And uh, I'd actually purchased the book before when it came out. I'd purchased the book. And I thought, okay, well, now I've really got to get on and read it. And it was so much fun. Um, so it's, it's, it's a thrill, really, to introduce you, Jonathan. Um, so let me just introduce you briefly. And he's, he's received his PhD from Cambridge University. When was that, by the way? Uh, 2020 is when I passed my Viva. 2020, right. Okay. And but you're now Assistant Professor of Theology and Philosophy at Lincoln Christian University, as well as a fellow at the Cambridge Centre for the Study of Platonism. And I just discovered a co-host of the Spiritually Incorrect podcast, which I am definitely going to have a listen to um, later on. Um, welcome to OnScript. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to be here. It's, it's, as I said, I, I thoroughly enjoyed reading your book. I'm really enthusiastic about it. I mean, this is just, if you're listening to this, just go ahead and get it. Don't be an idiot. Go and buy it. And I've got to say, the, the, because we're going to get to the genre of your book in a moment, but what I discovered reading this sort of Socratic-type reasoning is I was taken deeper into the subject matter than I would have been, I suspect, had it been a mere textbook, you know, an academic tome. It was the the genre of it drew me into the subject matter in a unique way. Um, I find this with some some, some educational tools that are out there. They, you know, uh, 
spaced repetition or mnemonics or something like that can often give you a fresh insight into the process of learning. But but the way you did this was not only funny, it was a real it a joy to, to read. It was it was deeply educational. Um, I think I grasped your idea in a way that perhaps I might not have done had you not had these characters in the book positioned to to pick it apart, you know, the the argument. Anyway, I'm love I loved it, so thank you for, for writing this. Right now, let's get to the problems of the book. No, I'm kidding. Uh, that's, can, <laughs> could you tell us something about your, your book's subtitle? So it's called Monotheism, and I just love this. An absurdly arrogant attempt to answer all the problems of the last 2,000 years in one night at a pub. <laughs> can you tell us something about that subtitle? Uh, well, I came up with that subtitle right after I'd read Francis Spuford's Unapologetic why, despite everything, Christianity still makes surprising emotional sense. And I suppose I just wanted to emulate that book in any way that I could, because I absolutely loved it. So I, I, I uh, hijacked the subtitle format of this elongated uh, type thing and just went with, well, what is this book? It is an absurdly arrogant attempt to answer all the problems of the last 2,000 years in one night uh, in a pub. Uh, and I think for some... In, in some sense, uh, the absurdly arrogant part was my way of saying, I'm trying to do something that you really aren't supposed to do anymore, which is kind of go for it. Try to explain everything all at once in a way that you haven't really been allowed to do since Hegel. And I recognize the inherent arrogance and ridiculousness and problematic nature of those types of projects. I very much do recognize the problems with that. Um, and yet uh, I still felt like it was worth putting this forward, but with the caveat that I acknowledge that this is absurdly arrogant, it's in the title, um, and I fully expect it to be torn apart. But I suppose what draws me to theology and philosophy is the bigness of it, the arrogance of it. So I, I can't help but go big. That's, that's what I want, is to explain all of the big problems. That's what got me excited about it. You're not a generalist, are you? You're a specialist, but you still manage to keep an eye on those very big questions. One of the reasons I found it so fascinating, I suppose. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I have specific expertise in a few areas, but I do, it is the big picture that excites me. I don't want to disappear into the nuances of one Greek word for 50 years. Now that, so let's say something then a little bit about the genre. You've got a, a script, as it were, with stage performance cues and three main protagonists, although I'll leave the final twist aside. But can you just tell us a bit about the three characters before we get into the meat of your argument? There's Mira, Vlad, and Idi. Yeah, so basically Vlad and Idi are these two professors at a university who regularly meet together in a pub. Uh, and I wrote this in the midst of sort of an academic life in Cambridge. So uh, I guess perhaps I was emulating Tolkien and Lewis and their kind of meetings in Oxford. Um, but two professors, Edie and Vlad, meeting in a pub. Uh, Edie's having a bit of an existential crisis, is thinking about just kind of giving up uh, on family, life, meaning, all of that sort of thing, doesn't know what to do. Uh, but he's very uh, ridiculous about it. You know, it's... He's one of those ridiculous characters that one second is saying they're going to kill themselves and the next second is raising a glass and singing a song on top of the table. And his friend Vlad is a bit more stable, a bit more grounded. He appreciates the idiosyncrasies of his friend, but 
uh, is also a much more wholesome, regulated character. And they get into a discussion about all of these problems that Edie has uh, about meaning, about God, free will, the existence of the soul, the nature of the Trinity, all of these types of things. Uh, and Edie basically says, unless I can figure these questions out, I'm done. I just, I can't keep going on. And Vlad says, well, let's try. And the third character is Mira. She is the bartender slash waitress, and she drifts in and out of the conversation. Uh, and as the script goes on, you begin to realize that she's not just what she seems. She's a bit of a mystery as well, and she knows much more about these discussions than you would expect a bartender to know. And that ends up playing into the ontological questions in a weird, unexpected way. As for the genre, my, uh, my hope was to put forward a genuinely novel, I mean, I don't know how new it is, because you can never say something's new these days, but uh, I was hoping to put forward an actual argument academically, an academically rigorous, philosophically rigorous argument for something that um, I, I really do think is true and hasn't really been talked about that much in academia. So it's it's meant to be an academic argument, but I've never really seen academics and popular level stuff as a as needing to be dichotomized. I think the best academics do both and vice versa. And it's, so that's why I wrote it as a Socratic dialogue, uh, because I felt the conversational format between Edie, Vlad, and Mira made the most sense of it. Um, and in a much deeper sense, the Socratic dialogue is the most ancient of academic formats. It goes back to Plato and others. So it, it's, I don't even see it as just popular level. I see it as the most ancient of academic uh, genres. And I hate that academics today has been reduced to article writing amongst scholars and specialists. It makes it so dull and exhausting. And I think tedious because it's removed from the realities of everyday life. I don't think the abstractions of a of an essay are getting us closer to truth. I think they're abstracting us away from real embodied conversational truths. Um, so anyways, that's my thoughts on the genre. Yeah, thank you. I, I, I don't think I, I would have appreciated the force of your argument just then about the importance of this as an academic exercise as well uh, prior to reading your book um, because you really do show the way in which... In, communicating an argument in this genre is perhaps even more effective. I, I find the, the, the most important books in my life tend to anticipate the objections that I have towards a given proposition in the following paragraphs, and it becomes then something of a conversation. And, you know, the Socratic method is, is coming back into vogue at the moment. It's a bit like Stoicism. Uh, there's a whole host of books now on the Socratic method, so maybe... Maybe this is the first of many to come. I can only hope. Yeah. No, that would be that would be great. So let's let's get into the the meat of of the book. So at the start of your book, you you outline by means of the character Idi thirteen objections to Christian faith. You now Idi is this professor, as you've said, and is wrestling with with significant doubts before he preaches his Christmas sermon in the following morning, and much in in this. Um, this play, if you want to call it that, hangs in the balance. You know, if his if his doubts win out, then he's not going to be going back to his wife and kids and he's going to embrace a life of nihilism. Maybe you could just begin by walking us through, in a nutshell, um, or as many as you can remember anyway, the 13 objections <laughs> that Idi raises. 
So the core objection that he starts with is the Trinity. How does it make sense that God is one and three? You know, one plus one plus one equals three. It shouldn't equal one. It, God can't be many and one simultaneously. And he just, he sees that as the first big issue. Uh, and then he lists 12 other issues after that. But my approach in the book is that once you solve this first question of the Trinity, the answer to the other questions naturally follow. Uh, but the other objections that he gets into uh, very quickly are the nature of the incarnation, the idea that religious people are too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. You know, we're so focused on heaven that we just let the earth go to pot. And then he talks about the impossibility of free will and the dichotomy of determinism and indeterminism and how either option you pick leads you not to free will, but just back to the... Uh, inherent meaninglessness of, of all of our choices. Uh, then he gets into the question of the soul and how that relates to neuroscience and Descartes and mind-body dualism and how we can have a soul that interacts with the body. <laughs> then he gets into the problem of evil and he just sort of is spiraling here. He's Every possible problem he could ever think of is coming to his head to justify his uh, desire to just go and do whatever he wants that night. Then he brings up Christianity in relation to other religions. Why are the there are all these people who don't believe in Jesus? Why is why are all these people all going to hell? That sort of thing. Then he brings up sort of the Freudian Feuerbachian critique that God is just a projection of ourselves. He is a bearded father figure in the clouds who fills the hole in our hearts that our own fathers left because they were absent, and so God's a projection of ourselves. Then he he talks a bit about how there's no objective morality and it's it's relative to specific cultures places and times and anytime you try to impose an objective morality you end up sort of colonialistically a word i'm just going to invent there imposing yourself on people and with that he talks about how religion can be deeply repressive and seems to be on the wrong side of history on every social sexual political issue and also, just how patriarchal Christianity is, how sexist and uh, how the uh, imagery of the Trinity of the Father and the Son, but no maternal figure is deeply sexist. And that plays into the Christianity being on the wrong side of everything. And finally, the cherry on top that he casually places on the conversation just for effect, because that's who he is, is why are all these priests touching little boys? Uh, and he sort of froze that out there, and I don't think he really wants an answer to it. He just wants to be suggestive and provocative, and so, so that's kind of his final volley that he sends. So that's the first chapter, is him just outlining all the reasons he finds his faith ridiculous, um, and the subsequent book is attempting to dive into those questions, not in-depth for each one, the whole point is to say that once you answer the question of the Trinity, all these other questions fall into place. And so I don't do one chapter on each of those questions. The whole book is about the Trinity. And then the final chapters are just me showing how the Trinity makes sense of all these other questions as well. Because once you have that linchpin in place, everything else comes together. Exactly. So the, thank you. That was brilliant. So the next three chapters constitute the core of your argument. And you're dealing with really serious things here, but what what you managed to do so well is thread throughout in a really natural, non-forced way, a lot of humour. So it isn't it isn't a, a turgid read. 
In fact, I haven't laughed as much reading a book since perhaps Trip York's The Devil Wears Nada, which I highly recommend to everyone. Um, but those next three chapters, the three, the one in the three, and then you've got 3.1415926 and so on, pi. Um, so let's start with the big three. You know, what what is your big idea, your central contention in this chapter? So uh, Vlad, after hearing Edie's objections, decides to start with the Trinity. Does the Trinity make sense or not? And he basically says, well, I don't think it makes sense. Maybe someone can make sense of it, but I can't. And so Edie's like, well, if I won, then you can't make sense of it. Um, and the approach that I take in the book is, well, the Trinity doesn't make sense. But when we look at the origins of the universe, it also doesn't make sense. When we try to explain where all of this came from, when we go back and ask what caused the cause that caused the cause, what caused the Big Bang, what caused that, when you, when you keep going back um, to try to figure out how the universe came into being, no one seems to be able to make sense of that either. Uh, it, it's this enigma that defies philosophical sense. You end up with these Kantian antinomies and all of these types of things where reason just breaks down at the origins of the universe. And yet, somehow or other, we must have come to be, or else we wouldn't be here to talk about it. And as we're discussing how the universe uh, came to be and how it doesn't make sense, uh, Vlad and Edie realize that the same problems philosophically that arise when you're talking about the origins of the universe are actually the exact same philosophical problems that arise when you're talking about the Trinity. It's the same conceptual enigmas, just in different dress. And so the Trinity is actually the same philosophical problem as the origins of the universe, just seen from different angles. And... So what if the Trinity makes as much sense as our own existence? Yes, perhaps the Trinity doesn't make sense, but that doesn't mean you can deny it any more than you can deny your own existence for not making sense. And so uh, basically we use the existence of the universe as sort of a, a grounding foot to then launch out into absurdity and to say, okay, what if we can believe in ridiculous things as long as they are only as ridiculous as our own existence. That's the tether that prevents us spiraling into whatever we want to believe, is the universe itself. So basically, uh, the Trinity doesn't make sense, but the origins of the universe doesn't make sense either. And it's the same reason for both of them. And so you can no more deny the Trinity for not making sense than you can deny your own existence. That's the point of that chapter. Super summary. Maybe we can just dig deeper, a little bit deeper anyway, into that that core argument because what you you do when you're looking at the origins of of the universe you look at two options for solving this this problem and the first i think it is anyway the first that you look at is that there must be a sense in which the universe has always existed so we don't need to worry about questions of origin um and you use a fantastic analogy of the cheeseburger and maybe you can just speak into that a little bit this is so this is the becoming um, side of things, and then we're going to look at the the being um, side of your argument. But maybe you could just sort of summarize that for us. Yeah, basically, they look at the origins of the universe, and there's kind of three options, three meta options for how the universe came to be. The first option uh, I call becoming, where well, what caused the universe? Well, something before it. 
Well, what caused that? Something before that. And it just goes back and back and back in an infinite regression of causes. There's, there's nothing that's eternal or timeless or outside of time that causes the universe. It's just an infinite chain of causal becoming. So how did I get here? My parents. How did my parents get here? Their parents. How did they get here? Their parents. It keeps going back until you get to the origins of the species, the origins of the planet, the origins of the universe. What caused the universe? Well, either it was a god or another universe that cyclically caused ours. But either way, that thing would itself need a cause. And so the cause would just keep going back. And that would extend into infinity, uh, an infinite chain. And so uh, that's the first option, is what I call becoming. That the universe is explained by becoming. And by becoming, I mean that which is already in time. That which is causal and cause and effect and able to do things. Well, the problem comes in, right, when you start adding the word infinity in, into this, right? And so you go yeah. to the, the famous example of uh, a hotel with infinite rooms and ultimately how this means you'll never get your cheeseburger. This totally makes sense, by the way, if you read, <laughs> if you read the book, but maybe you can unpack that for us. I mean, I wrote it in a book because I couldn't figure out how to say it out loud. Uh, <laughs> basically, the idea of the universe being caused by becoming... Becoming means that which is in time, that which begins and ends and that sort of thing. And so to say the universe is caused by becoming is to say that the universe is of time is caused by something else that's in time, by something else that is becoming. And so if the universe is explained by becoming, what explained that becoming? Well, something before it that's in becoming. And then what explains that? Something before that that's in becoming. And so if becoming is the ultimate explanation of the universe, there has to be an infinite chain of becoming that extends infinitely back with each entity within becoming explaining the next one and no first entity. But the problem, of course, with that is does infinity make sense? And there's a couple arguments I show to say that it doesn't make sense. Uh, first of all, if I told you I would give you a cheeseburger after an infinite period of time had elapsed, would you ever get your cheeseburger? Well, no, because infinity would have to occur first. Infinity is not just a really large amount of time. Infinity is rather that which cannot be traversed no matter how much number of finite days and years you wait. And so you would never get your cheeseburger because infinity would have to occur first. And in the same way, if our universe has existed for an infinite period of time before this moment, we would never have reached this moment because infinity would have had to have happened first. And so the past cannot be an infinite set of causal becoming explaining itself or else we never would have reached this moment in time. Likewise, there are other issues with becoming. Uh, say that Hilbert's Hotel is a great example. Say that you have an infinite number of rooms, uh, an infinity hotel, and you have an infinite number of rooms and they're all filled. Everyone's checked in for the weekend. There's an infinite number of guests and an infinite number of rooms. But what if half of the guests check out on Sunday night? The guests in every other room check out. How many guests are left? Well, it can't be a finite number like 20 billion guests because then infinity would have just been 20 billion times two. And so the answer to what's half of infinity has to be infinity. 
because otherwise infinity would just be uh, a finite number times two, which that can't be what infinity is because it has to be beyond the finite. So half of infinity has to be infinity. And so the whole is equal to the part when it comes to infinity. And mathematicians get around this by saying there are greater and lesser infinites, and that gets complicated. And I get into that in the book, but my basic argument is infinity doesn't make sense to finite minds like ours. Perhaps it exists, perhaps it's real, but it doesn't make sense to us. And so when you're looking at the origins of the universe, we cannot make rational sense of a universe that is explained by becoming, because becoming already necessitates this infinite regression of becoming. So that's the first option for how the universe came to be, becoming. And I don't think it makes sense. And that's why I then launch into the second option, being. That which is not becoming, that which is not within time and beginnings and endings, but rather is outside of time. That which is atemporal, timeless, and so doesn't need a cause of its existence uh, because it never began to exist. It's outside of time. And you could probably see where a lot of people go to the cosmological argument here. This is where people say, well, God is the timeless entity that creates the world. The world needs a cause of its existence. That cause is God. And God doesn't need a cause of his existence because he's outside of time. He never began to exist, but is timeless. And that's that's been the historic religious stance on this. Um, and there's a certain intuitive sense to that. But my problem that I bring up in the book is, okay, if God is outside of time, he doesn't need a cause of its existence. I That makes sense to me. But if he's timeless, then how can he begin to create the universe in time? How can an awe-temporal being create a temporal effect? Because anything God would do, he can't begin to do, but must be eternally doing. So if he's eternally, timelessly creating the universe, the universe would have to be timeless as well. But that's obviously not the universe we exist in. And so in getting around God's need for a cause of his existence by making him timeless being, you actually make him impotent to begin to cause anything at all. And so being can't explain our universe any more than becoming can. Before I continue, maybe I'll let you throw out some questions or thoughts there, because I know I've <laughs> yeah. said a lot. Thoroughly enjoying this. Yes. Um, so, so you've got becoming and being as these two options to the question of our existence and then then you go to your to the third which is effectively both and so maybe maybe on the one hand you could just take us through that um you know explain what you mean by that and how obviously that links into the trinity but let's not forget to talk about the the, the idea are there other ways of seeing this are there other categories are there other sure. options on the table which would be fun to, to discuss yeah, for sure well basically by becoming i meant the universe is explained by something else that's in time already. So by becoming, I would say there's a temporal explanation for the universe. And by being, I would say there's an explanation for the universe that's outside of becoming, that is temporal. So becoming is meant to exhaust all of the options to explain reality that time itself can explain from within time. And being is meant to exhaust all of the possible explanations for reality from timeless, atemporal things outside of time. So either A or non-A. 
you know, it's it's meant to be exhaustive. You, you either can explain the universe using temporal things or you have to appeal to all temporal things. And the third option is, well, what if the universe is explained by both? What if there is a timeless entity that is able to begin to create in time or an awe temporal being that also can do temporal things? What if the heart of the universe is not being or becoming, but both together as one? So something that is timeless and temporal at the same time and in the same way. Some people have tried to approximate this with the uncaused cause or the unmoved mover, but I think anytime you try to make that work rationally, it, it just breaks down. Because for this thing at the heart of the universe to be both, to be timeless and in time, I think you're ultimately going to end up making it sound like a contradiction. For it to be both would be for it to be timeless and temporal at the same time. You know, he would be... Uh, in time and not in time. And I think those are mutually exclusive options. And so the both option, being and becoming, would explain the universe and how it got here, but it's a contradiction. And so it doesn't make any more rational sense than the infinite regression of becoming or the option of being beginning to cause something. And I basically say that I think that kind of exhausts all of the possible options. Either the universe is explained by something that is within time, by something that is outside of time, or something that is both. I don't know what other options there are, either A, non-A, or both. And I think you're right that perhaps there's some explanation for the universe that's even beyond those categories. Some explanation for a reality that is beyond language or my ability to understand or grasp. I'm totally open to that possibility. However, I think that within the realm of what we can describe using language, those three options pretty much summarize what we can postulate. I know there are hundreds of different, thousands of different mythological origin stories, different scientific explanations, but I think they all, in one way or another, reduce to one of those three options. The scientist that says that something caused the universe and something caused it before that is just going to fit into temporal becoming. The theologian that talks about a timeless God is just going to end up with the being option. And the philosopher who tries to do both in a sort of Hegelian way is going to end up with the both option, which I think is a contradiction. So I see those as the only, only games in town in terms of what makes sense to us. So where we've got to now, before the quickfire round, um, really, really then, is in, in order to explain our existence, we don't have... Um, a coherent or non-paradoxical or non-contradictory account. We, we are cast back on these three options and these three options alone, which suggests that, well, we are dealing here with something that is uh, incoherent or, 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 or confused, whichever way we turn. Is that, is that a fair way of summarizing it? Yes. Um, so I guess we end up with three options, each of which do not make rational sense to us, and yet one of which must be true or else we wouldn't exist to talk about it. Uh, we wouldn't be here. The universe wouldn't exist. And so one of these has to be true, despite it seeming irrational. And the question is, which one of these are you going to go with? And uh, I say that the Trinity basically fits perfectly with the idea of 
the bringing together of being and becoming in the both option because you know it take what would the both option entail something that is timeless well you know outside of time you have this sort of distant father figure in the clouds that we often think of as the father who is so transcendent that you can't even look upon him without dying um and who we constantly are worried about reducing to a finite temporal thing with idolatry in the old testament and so that seems to parallel very well the father with being in the judeo-christian account and yet you have this son in the new testament who is within time and space who incarnates who takes a fleshly fleeting body of time and space who you can reach out and touch and who can even die and somehow this temporal incarnate son is supposed to be one with this timeless transcendent eternal father figure and obviously that seems paradoxical and people want to kill him because of that and i'm thinking of the specific account like where they say you a mere man claim to be god uh the paradox of the trinity in many ways is the paradox of how we got here of all of how being and becoming work together to spawn the universe and that actually echoes what the trinity kind of says that it was through the sun that all things were made being on its own couldn't begin to create the universe because it's outside of time and so it's only if being and becoming work together only if being works through becoming that he can begin to create the universe and so through becoming all things are made through the sun all things were made i suppose then what and it's important to say at this point because you do labor this point in in the book and i think this is where mirror comes in quite a lot you're you're not saying look the origin of the universe is is um irrational therefore we can believe another irrational thing what you were very careful to say there is that the paradox is the same paradox the trinity and the creation or, or rather the origins of existence it's the same paradox yeah. have i summarized that correctly yeah I, I think uh if you just look at one absurd thing and say well i guess absurd things are true now let's go believe whatever we want uh then irrationality spreads everywhere and we can't even have a rational discussion anymore um, I see this a lot in New Age books where they look at quantum physics and then they're like, well, then maybe telepathy is true, um, <laughs> you know, and I don't want to do that because I, I want this to still be a rational enterprise. I want this to be a rational justification of the irrational. And so I don't want to pivot from one absurdity to another to another because that explodes and you can never stop that explosion. Rather, I want to say that it's not just that they're parallel or similar absurdities. They're the same absurdity because for the Christian, we've always believed that a Trinitarian God created the universe. And so the Trinity and the universe, the problem of the Trinity and the problem of how we got here are not two separate problems for the Christian. They're the same problem worded differently because it, the problem of how we got here is the problem of how the Trinitarian God spawned us. To maybe reiterate the categories really quickly, the problem with being on its own is that it needs becoming in order to begin to create anything. And the problem with becoming on its own is that it doesn't have that eternal ground. And so it has to eat, infinitely keep stretching back without any sort of being or solid eternal foundation. 
And so both of them need each other. Being needs becoming in order to begin to create the universe, and becoming needs being in order to ground itself eternally and to have a, a foundation for itself. And in many ways, I see that as the relationship between the father and the son. Um, the father creates through the becoming of the son, and the son is grounded eternally in his begottenness from the father. So just to reiterate those categories, I don't see them as two separate problems. I see them as the exact same problem. The coming together of being and becoming in both is where the spirit comes in as the union between the two, the kiss between being and becoming that contradictorily weds them into one. So to use the Augustinian language. Yeah, well, um, I think as we will see as we return back from the quickfire round, all of this is a fundamental backbone for everything else you're going to be saying um, in the book in light of those 13 objections. But do you know anything about the quickfire round? Do you know what to expect? I do not. No. Oh, well, it's this is my this is the gotcha time. No, it's, it's not. I'm just going to ask you some random questions. And the idea is you just give me a knee jerk response, you know, just a quick response so that we can get to better learn you i've already learned something about you apparently you read new age books about telepathy and that was uh, that was a good one, uh to learn now you're an ordained minister what's the best and worst thing about being an ordained minister um the worst thing is that people expect me to be nice to them <laughs> and uh and to talk and be pastoral and i can totally do that i can be very pastoral but it's it's very much an act <laughs> um, the best thing the best thing is not like a, an abstract best thing it's a grounded best thing and it was the the five years I got to just be in a community um, pastoring in Vancouver Canada yeah. I was the English pastor over a Chinese congregation and the relationships and connections we got there were just part of me still regrets leaving um, and it saddens me to, to think about it and remember it because it was just such a wonderful time and we were just so embedded in their lives. And we were there long enough that I didn't just have to pretend to be nice. I could be a grouch and still be loved and loved in the community. Uh, so I just, I love that incarnational lived embodied relationship thing that can happen in ministry. It can sort of reincarnate the old village lifestyle that's been lost uh, where everyone's in community, living together. Yeah, it reminds me of David Goodhart's somewhere people argument. Maybe you could tell us something about yourself that would just surprise us. I think I've misunderstood the meaning of the quickfire round. The quickfire round is for me to shut up and give you a quick answer. No, no, you get I no, droned on anyway, ahead. didn't I? <laughs> yeah, so I'm enjoying it. So uh, you asked, tell me something. Yeah, tell, just tell us something about yourself that you think might surprise us. Some un unusual truth about you. I had butt surgery in a breast clinic in Thailand uh, about a decade ago. So that is awesome. That's my good. That is hands down the best answer I've ever heard. It's true, and it's a first. Uh, I'm not, well, you know, yeah. maybe one of the mats has had a similar procedure. It's impossible to say with those two. But now, okay, biblical scholars and systematic theologians, I think, often speak past one another. So just off the cuff. What would be the big thing you'd like biblical scholars to learn from philosophical theologians such as yourself? The thing I'd really like them to do is to buy my book. <laughs> but I suppose that's generically true for everyone. Yeah. Um, 
I think the main thing, and I do both theology and philosophy, so this this isn't just true for biblical scholars, is to just appreciate the depths to which we all have an inherent world picture uh, and set of assumptions that we impose on any and every text, and to appreciate just how deep that goes. I think biblical scholars today are becoming more aware of that, but uh, it's it's very hard when you're around people who will just say, you know, just read the Bible. It just says this very clearly. And I just want them to appreciate how radically different their set of eyes are in a Western 21st century context from a first century Middle Eastern Jewish context. That's, that's about it. I think a lot of people want to dispense with philosophy and theology because they think they can but they're all philosophers and theologians. Absolutely. They're just bad philosophers and theologians because they're always bringing their their metaphysical assumptions to the table. They're just pretending they aren't and then doing it subtly. So, yeah. Yes, indeed. Those implicit theological and metaphysical scripts that determine how we read things and how we pray. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. You could have dinner with Aquinas, Kierkegaard, or, and be honest, or Kim Kardashian, which would you choose? Kierkegaard. You're kidding. Yeah. Wow. No. Why? No. You I'm... would you have said Kardashian? Yeah, of course. I mean, maybe yeah. I. I think the I think the dumb ox would have been fun to have a meal with. Uh, as a fellow fat man, <laughs> I think me and Aquinas would have. But I, I don't. So Aquinas is brilliant, and I, I I I love Aquinas, but I don't know how much of a conversationalist I. You know, he he would sort of be like. Well, he let me, you know, if you're having this conversation, he'd be like, this is what I think you're saying. And then here are three possible retorts. Mm -hmm. to and then, he, <laughs> you know, I don't know how much of a dinner conversation that is. Yeah, quite as riveting as reading uh, the summer, perhaps. Yeah. Well, fair point. Yeah. Okay. You've got a time machine. This is the last one. And you can go back in time to Augustine. Now we've already mentioned Augustine. What theological or philosophical opinion would you try to convince him about? You know, this is interesting because my first exposure to the philosophy of time was Augustine's Confessions. The latter bits, the latter chapters uh, were one of the first books I read when I started looking into religion. And in some ways, uh, my book, and I, I guess I'm just turning this whole thing into a sales pitch for my book. <laughs> In, for the for the for the audio's sake, he just flashed his book in front of the camera. There you go. Oh, there's no video. Okay. No, well, sadly not. The title louder. Um, there's that famous quote from all. Uh, you know that. Uh, what was God doing uh, before the creation of world? The world. Well, he's preparing hell for little boys who ask questions. And Augustine has this sort of view of time where you can't really make you can't really talk about time before creation because you know it's it's before is a temporal word and in many ways that conundrum and paradox is what's at the heart of my book is exactly you can't talk about god creating the universe or there being a before the universe and so how can being and becoming relate how can they have a relationship and you can just say well somehow they do it doesn't make sense and i'm fine with that answer but uh, once you've gone into that answer, once you embrace mystery, that needs to trickle down to other areas. You can't just pick and choose. So Right. Which leads nicely, really, the next session where we're looking at how this, 
how this affects other issues. Um, so we've we've looked at the core argument being becoming both the Trinity, um, creation, the Trinity can be as rational as our own existence. What do you think are the major objections to this central contention that you know that you you discuss in in the book? So I basically embrace that being and becoming were are both wedded as one in God, in the Trinity. That the Father is eternal being, the Son is temporal becoming, and the Spirit is this sort of contradictory paradoxical union the kiss between them that binds them together such that an eternal timeless being can begin to create in time because time and eternity work together as one in the Trinity. Um, a couple potential objections to that, uh, by making being and becoming one, is that pantheism? Am I merging the eternal with the natural, physical, temporal world? And I make it very clear in the book that I am not. I am saying that the father and son are one and being is one with the becoming of the son. But that doesn't mean that being is one with all becoming. So the son is temporal and able to begin to create things, but uh, that doesn't mean he is all temporal things. So the son is becoming, but that doesn't mean he's all becoming. Uh, and I think a lot of people talk about God before creation, you know, uh, and I suppose if God was thinking thoughts to himself before creation, that's all that would be implied by me saying that being and becoming are one, is that even before God creates the universe, he was able to begin to do things or think things or start things because becoming already resided within him prior to the becoming of the universe. And so anyone who believes God had mental events in time prior to the universe believes something along the lines of being and becoming being one even if they don't believe that god is one with the becoming of the entire universe there has to be becoming in god even prior to the universe in order for him to begin to create the universe and he is one with that becoming even though he's not one with all becoming so that would be important is to not merge god with the entire universe of becoming god is one with the hand that knocks the dominoes into motion but he's not one with the dominoes themselves so now let's just pick on one so what what you then do you say okay this is why we can believe the trinity but there are 12 other objections and we obviously you we can't go through all of them although you you do a fantastic job of of, of working through these and in, in in a chapter um but maybe we just pick on on one i mean i quite enjoyed how you dealt with um the problem of the uh, of of the impossibility of free will and and determinism in determinism indeterminism that entire problem um, maybe you could just give us an example of how solving this core issue at the heart echoes then in some of the other objections that were raised by Idi at the start yeah so great i'll do the free will one uh the problem of free will is in short that we have to act both within and outside within and beyond our nature at the same time in order to create freely and i'll explain what i mean by that when i make a choice we for it to really be a choice it can't just be necessitated by who i am because who i am is the product of my biology my experiences my dna my parents all of those things and so um if my choice is forced based on the nature of who I am, 
well, I didn't choose to create who I am. I was made a certain way. And so it can't just be necessitated by my nature. So in a sense, I almost have to step out beyond my nature in order to make a choice that isn't necessitated or predetermined by who I was made to be. Because who I was made to be is itself determined by a series of causes that have extend all the way back before I was even born. So I can't just have this rigid nature that necessitates I act this, this, and this way. Free will requires me step beyond my nature to do something beyond what was necessitated or determined based on my nature. So I need to act beyond my nature in order to choose freely, right? But if I'm acting beyond my nature, then in what sense is it really me that is making the choice? If it's beyond my nature, there's a leap there where it's no longer coming from me because it's not my nature causing it. It's almost as if it popped out of nowhere, uh, which is similar to the question of determinism and indeterminism. If determinism is true, every cause has a cause, and that cause extends back before I was even born. And so people say, okay, determinism needs to not be true for free will. Okay, indeterminism is true. My choices don't aren't caused by me, they just pop out of nowhere uncaused. Well, how is that free will? If it's not coming out of you, if it's not caused by you, it's just popping out of nowhere. It's uncaused. It doesn't have uh, you as the source of it or the cause of it. it. It's It might as well have come from someone else because there's nothing causally linking you and the choice. And so either determinism or indeterminism don't get you to free will. And in the same way, Choices made within my nature don't get me to free will, and choices made beyond my nature don't get me to free will. What you need is both to be true. You need to make choices from within your nature and beyond your nature at the same time and in the same way. You need to have choices that aren't forced by your nature and yet can be causally traced back to your nature so that it can still be said to be your choice. And so it's at least a seeming contradiction. Uh, we have to act both within and beyond our nature at the same time and in the same way in order to achieve free will. Does that make sense so far before I parallel it to the Trinity? Yeah, I think it does. Yes, I think I'm following you. Well, when we look at the origins of the universe and the both option for the Trinity, an eternal timeless being needs to act beyond its timeless nature in order to begin to create in time. So when you look at the Trinity and the origins of the universe, in order for a timeless being to act beyond its nature to begin to create in time, you have to have this triune contradictory thing to be true. And that looks very much like free will. God has this eternal timeless nature, and yet he's able to act outside of and beyond his eternal timeless nature in order to begin to create in time. And so he has this static sort of deterministic, eternal nature. He is what he is. That's what he is. And yet, he acts beyond it. He acts beyond his timeless nature to begin to create in time, which is what I think of as a free choice. God was not necessitated to create. He didn't have to create the universe. It wasn't inherent to his eternal, timeless nature. He chose freely in the Son to begin to create. That which was timeless acted outside of its timeless nature to begin to create in time. And to me, that is the definition of free will, is something 
uh, acting beyond its nature, but also within its nature. And that's where the contradiction comes in. The You need both sides of that. It can't just be acting be outside of its nature that's timeless. It also has to be within its nature at the same time and in the same way. And so it has to be both the father and the son in order for it to be a free choice, uh, in order for the universe to begin to be created. There has to be a timeless, eternal nature that is the source of the universe. And so it really can be traced back to that timeless, eternal nature. And yet you also need to act outside of and beyond that timeless, eternal nature, or else the creation of the universe was necessitated by the nature of God. And so uh, in the contradiction of the Trinity, both of those things can be true. God has an eternal nature uh, that is the source and cause of the universe, but is it necessitated by that nature to create? How can those things both be true? That's the paradox of the Trinity and of being and becoming. Mm. Did I explain that well or should I explain it again? That's, that's super. Yeah, so effectively, again, it is the paradox of being and becoming and both. Uh, so it's it's not just you're not looking at the the Trinity and saying, okay, here's another problem. Let's see an analogous way of of solving the issues at hand. It is the same issue at hand, and you're showing why that's the case. Only in this instance, focusing on philosophical issues surrounding free choice, you're showing how it is actually almost within us this this contradiction. Um, uh, and I think you make the point, maybe not in relation to this particular issue, but in relation to the problem of the soul, um, that we're made in the image of God. Um, and so there's something of the the extension of the initial contradiction and paradox that helps us wrestle with this other issue before flying off into other absurdities. Exactly. Uh, and that's that's really what I keep developing is these aren't separate questions. It's not the origins of the universe and the Trinity and free will as separate issues that are similar. No, those should always have been the same discussion for Christians, because we believe that the triune God freely chose to create the universe. And so we should have been looking for this parallel all along. And when you actually do look at them philosophically, it's the same issue over and over again. The father of eternal being uh, needs to be this static, eternal, timeless nature that grounds all things, but we also need him to be able to be the son who acts outside of his timeless nature to begin to create the universe and be the one for whom all things were made. Um, and yes, I do then say, because the Imago Dei is true, this paradoxical Trinitarian mystery of free will uh it resides within all of us. And I think we can see that a bit um, because I think with God's foreknowledge, he has an eternal conception of who we are, a static, timeless conception in his thoughts of who we are and will be, and that is our nature. And yet we also are creatures in time uh, and are able to act outside freely within time of that nature. And it's that paradoxical Trinitarian union within us that enables us to make free choices, to make choices within our nature, because we are the ones making them, but also beyond that nature, because we're not just deterministically stuck to who we were made to be. Very clever way of handling this issue. I mean, I, 
all I can say is is you know pick up and read to those who are listening because this is th- this same kind of argumentative strategy is applied to all of the thirteen or bar one, um, all of the 13 objections that Iddy raises at the start. And that's just given a taste of that. Now, to, to really land this um, time with you, and I'm, a, I'm aware that we are soon um, going over our um, allotted schedule, maybe just brief responses to a few questions, uh, sort of more meta questions. I, I haven't read it yet, I must admit, but it's um, it's on my, on my reading list, namely J.C. Beale's The Contradictory Christ, and I know you make reference to his essay, I think, which is the backbone of that book. Um, but are, are there are there parallel strategies? Is there overlap in, in your argument um, as with his, or are you going in different directions? So I wrote this before I read any of Beale's stuff. Um, I wrote this in 2017. So the argument existed independent of that. But I will say when I later read Beale's stuff, as I was starting to kind of edit, I added a lot of that into some of the sections. And I found the the whole discussion that's occurring with Beale has been very helpful because I'm realizing how this isn't actually an odd thesis at all, but it's something that kind of has to be true. We all have to bracket off certain absurdities in order to go on living and making sense of things. And just because one thing seems contradictory doesn't mean nothing else can make sense rationally. Uh, And and a good example is, well, it seems like quantum physics and relativity theory are a contradiction as it currently stands. Um, And yet, just because that currently seems like a contradiction doesn't mean we should disbelieve in either of those things or throw the whole thing out, nor does it mean that all rationality everywhere gets thrown out and we can't make sense of anything. It just means this is one enigma that doesn't make sense. And that's okay. Perhaps reality is beyond our understanding. We should keep trying to probe its mysteries and hopefully perhaps we'll be able to make sense of it. And I do believe that perhaps uh, free will and the origins of the universe and the Trinity do make sense in some way that is just currently beyond me. Uh, And I do say that throughout the book. I do not overtly say contradictions are real. Rather, I say that we cannot disbelieve in certain things simply for currently seeming like a contradiction. Because, you know, if you start to do that, then you end up negating your own existence. And so I I very much like what Beale and others are doing, which is saying, you know, we have things that seem like contradictions all over the place. And that doesn't mean reason breaks down altogether. This is just what's required to live in our universe. And I am very much a fan of the idea that we don't want to make more sense than the universe or less sense than the universe. It's very easy to have a rationalistic system that's entirely internally consistent, but just isn't indicative of reality. And it's also very easy to have a system that makes no sense and also isn't indicative of reality. But reality is somewhere in between there. And I don't I want to be as rational as reality. And if that means embracing the occasional absurdity, then okay, because the existence of the universe seems absurd. And I don't want to make more sense than the universe. But I also don't want to make less sense. Uh, and, and at the same time, I don't know how relativity and quantum mechanics work together. And yet, 
the depth of reason and insight that is applied independently to relativity and to quantum physics is a huge argument for the rationality of the human mind and the rationality of the universe. And yet it, it also brings paradoxes together as well. And I think that's, that's the thing. Reason and irrationality somehow coexist and one never negates the other. And I think people want it to be either or they want to say, okay, either embrace the absurdity and everything's absurd or embrace everything being rational. And I don't think that either or really applies here. And maybe it does in an ultimate sense, maybe because God is the Logos, everything will ultimately make sense to me, but that doesn't mean I should discount things for currently seeming to not make sense because maybe God will explain it to me one day. And I think Beale and others are making a great case for why we need to learn to live with these absurdities and not just dismiss them uh, for currently seeming absurd. Now, what would you say to to those who think that overlaying father, son, and spirit language in scripture with being, becoming, and, and both is a bit too neat uh, for sort of philosophical uh, imposition? Yeah, yeah and I definitely get that. Their, their concern is that, you know, if the father is being, does that mean the father is timeless and eternal and unable to interact with things within time? Is he this impotent entity that's distant and absent and if the sun is in time does that mean he's not timeless and uh my whole point is that these aren't separate silos these are contradictorily or at least seemingly contradictorily merged as one and so the lines between them break down and so the father bleeds into the sun and vice versa um, and so i don't think they're neat categories at all that's precisely what i'm saying with the contradiction and yet they still can have things that are their primary identifiers, even if those bleed over into one another. The way I would think of it was in my relationship with my wife, I tend to be thought of as the creative one. And she tends to be thought of as the uh, administrative, efficient doer. The responsible one, in other words. <laughs> yeah, she's the responsible one. And there's some sense in which that is accurate. That is very accurate in the same way. It's, I would say it's accurate to say the father is more transcendent and timeless than the son who is incarnate though. There there's, those are differences. Those are real differences. And yet my wife also does creative things all the time that shock and surprise me. And I occasionally have been known to wash a dish or to pay a bill. And so she might be the responsible one and I might be the creative one. And those are useful, helpful, accurate things. And yet I can also do responsible things. She can also do creative things. And we bring those things out in each other. She makes me more responsible. And I think I've made her more creative and academic and these other things. And now she's going to go do her PhD. So, you know, <laughs> um, I think we, we bring those things out in each other. And so I would see it very similar with the father and son. Yes, I see the father as being and the son as becoming, but that doesn't limit them altogether. And they bring out those things in each other. And that's relationship. Yes, I, I think scripture does describe them in different ways, but those ways also get nuanced and broken down at times. And that's the nature of identity and difference, otherness and sameness um, that, that I think is at the heart of everything. Okay, well, maybe one final question. Do, do you think someone like the Robert Jensen, 
does does he present an alternative or perhaps complementary account of both being and becoming to your own? You know, on the one hand, he challenges any account that begins with Greek notions of timelessness as this primary predicate of divinity, um, which does sound a little bit like the deployment of being in the argument, and he's going to insist that God happens in Easter. But on the other hand, he effectively seems to make a case that's the same as yours, um, you know, that creation is launched from the epicentre of the Son's hypostasis, emerging out of the conversation between the Father and the Spirit. I mean, what say you? Is someone like Robert Jensen, who's really aware of philosophical concerns around time and divinity, uh, 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 a friend or foe in, in your vision of things? Well, I think Jensen was formative for Colin Gunton, who I did read quite a bit as I was thinking about this. So I have a bit more experience with Gunton than Jensen. But I will say that I think in many ways my project is that both andness. I think a, an account of God that is solely in that philosophical Greek timelessness tradition is inadequate to explain the origins of the universe, free will, but also the scriptural record. And, you know, I mean, Jesus is in time. He is incarnate. And I think especially classical theists, when they're trying to make sense of that, I just think they're tying themselves in knots. I'm not, I just don't know how they do it. But I also think they're right. And that's the both end of what I'm trying to do here is God is eternal, transcendent, all those classical philosophical things you're saying of him, which is epitomized by the category of being. And yet he's also in time, relational, experiential. I think he feels emotions and actually feels them, uh, you know, in a temporal process. And because I think the God is being and becoming both together in one, Father and Son united in the Spirit, uh, eternal, timeless, transcendent, all the things the Greeks longed for, all the things classical theists believe, and yet also this. And that's the mystery and the scandal of the Incarnation and the Trinity and Christian faith. So yeah, I would agree with a lot of those critiques, but also agree with the critiques of the critiques. And that's what I'm trying to hold in tension here. And that might seem like I'm just saying, let's embrace the mystery. But again, I'm trying to ground that mystery in something we all consent to, which is that we exist. I am not trying to say, let's just believe anything. No, I'm saying... This makes as much sense as the existence of the universe. And so it's still plausible to believe in. Fantastic. A very helpful response. Thank you. Now, do you plan to write anything else with a similar genre? And I'm hoping you're going to say yes. Uh, yeah. So I've got a few books coming out in the next few years. I have a book called Space God, uh, more rejudging a debate between Moore, Newton and Einstein. And that's on God's relationship to space. That's going to be more of an academic book. Uh, and that's hopefully coming out either at the end of this year or the beginning of next year. I'm just sort of waiting on the editors. Then I have uh, New Trinitarian Ontologies, which I co-edited with John Milbank and Ryan Hacker from the New Trinitarian Ontologies Conference. And so that will, we've got all the articles in now. So hopefully that'll be in the next year or so. Uh, and then the fourth book which I think is very much similar to monotheism, is going to be called Zeus Was an Atheist, uh, an odd retelling of the Moses story. 
And that's going to be a monologue written from Moses's perspective. And the basic idea is that he is contrasting these Egyptian gods with and the the sort of Greek gods that they're hearing about from across the Mediterranean with the God who says, I am the God who is being itself. And when you contrast the God of being itself with the sort of creaturely Zeus gods that are sort of creatures who were created and, you know, the Greek universe ultimately doesn't start with an eternal being. It starts with chaos and the gods are sort of these higher creatures that arise out of the chaos. Um, the basic conclusion he comes to is that Zeus was an atheist because Zeus knew that chaos was at the heart of existence and that he was just sort of a creature, a very powerful creature, but a creature nonetheless. And so the title is Zeus was an atheist and it's, it's building off of the, I am where God, well, I personally like to interpret it as God saying, I am being, I am existence itself in this transcendent sense, though. I know some people disagree with that, but I don't care. Uh, <laughs> I don't care if you have a good exegetical reason not to, to think that's why he says that it's too philosophically and theologically beautiful for me to not think that's what he's saying. And I don't know if that's a good argument, but everyone can shut up. I like it. So. <laughs> Let's cancel those uh, disagreeers. Yeah, but that's very exciting. I, I look forward to uh, I look forward to reading those, and uh, perhaps I'll send you my article where I critique Kate Sonderegger for doing something similar with the I am saying, so then we can have a chat at another time. Uh, but this has been it's been terrific, really, really terrific hearing you wax lyrical about your book as i've said um to those who are listening do do yourself a favor go and get this book you will enjoy it immensely thank you very much for joining us jonathan on on script well thank you for having me it was lovely to to meet you and to be here you have been listening to on script delectable conversations on scripture and theology if this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate. 